It is one thing. It is one thing to be convinced that something is true. It is another to know that it's real. Stay with me. It is one thing to be convinced that something is true up here. It is another to know that it is in fact real. So let me give you some case in points. Case in point. A, um, an online shopper with a very limited budget, in fact, an overstrained budget, who is poised to make yet another impulse buy. Or a child who is racked with a stubborn cough and is refusing to take the medicine that his or her mother or father is offering them, even while said child's friends are outside playing. We as followers of Jesus struggle in, in, in much the same way. Intellectually, you may gladly adhere to, confess the great old historic creeds of the church. Maybe it might be right where your convictions may lie. And yet, at the same time, experientially, that is just not where you are. It's not landing. It's not connecting. You might have degrees in Bible. You might be a teacher. Yes, even a teacher regaled for your insights. And yet, at the same time, it has not landed experientially. Now, how can this be true? Because, again, the reality is it is one thing to be convinced that something is true up here. It is another to know in here that it's real. Two very, very different things. If I can put it another way, it's a whole other way to be transformed. That's where we're going over the next few minutes together. Uh, this is meant to be, this morning, the second in a series uh, unpacking and explaining our church's new vision statement. And so the clauses, the pertinent clauses are going to be up on the screen. Perhaps some of you may have picked this up as you came in. We gave them out, a bunch of them out last week. I think there were some more here this week as well. So what I'm going to do is just walk you through, so which part of this are we in today? So it starts with, right here on the cover, you can see it there on the screen, uh, the, the summary statement of, of the whole vision statement that Christ Presbyterian Church exists for the joy of, excuse me, the glory of God and the joy of all people. Okay, so then you open it up, or next screen, you open it up and you see a summary explanation uh, or, or um, exposition, I suppose you could say, of that sentence, just kind of exploding it just a little bit, helping us to understand it a bit more. What do you mean? We are a covenant family being transformed to the likeness of Christ, rejoicing in and displaying His truth, goodness, and grace, growing in love, service, and relationship to God and our community for the glory of God and His kingdom, present and eternal. And then if you look at the, well, yeah, it's highlighted, the, the highlighted section, every one of those places in the statement where it's in bold or in, in the paper copy where it's in all caps there is, there is then a respective explanatory paragraph that takes you into further detail as to what do we mean there. 
And so this week, we're looking at the second line, being transformed to the likeness of Christ. So under transformation, here in the brochure, uh, and there on the next screen, we read, we are imperfect, but being refined daily through the word, next screen, there we go, we are imperfect, but being refined daily through the word, the spirit, and the fellowship of believers. We recognize our desperate and constant need of confession and forgiveness before God and each other. We invite you to come and grow with us. Then there is yet more explanation, drilling down bullet points, kind of bringing it from the 10,000 foot down on the ground. And let me read those as well under the topic of transformation. We will devote ourselves to the teaching and practice of the Bible. We will confess and repent while showing sympathy for the struggles of others. We will practice forgiveness, grace, and mercy. We will seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit as our sanctification continues. Transformation. That's the idea. Transformation. This is who we believe the Lord has called us to be and what it is he has called us towards. Now, as I stated with last week, after having read this far, I want to pose this question. Where do you see this in the Bible? Is this, in fact, biblically, scripturally grounded? And if so, how so? What does the Lord say to this topic, in particular here this morning, transformation? So if you have a Bible with you, I ask you, invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Uh, this is one of Paul's letters. The Apostle Paul wrote this uh, to a church in a city called Corinth. The people there were known as Corinthians, so that's why this is referred to as 2 Corinthians. It's the second of the letters we, we have from Paul in the exchanges of communication between him and the church there in Corinth. So this is after the Gospels and after Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. As long as that book is, as long as that letter is, it's interesting how little it's read, usually because it's second, right? It's the second one, so how could it be worth reading? Let's just stay with the first one. That'd be a grave mistake. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Hear now God's word. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Can we pray together? Lord, there's certainly a lot here in these words from our brother, the Apostle Paul, that is exciting. It captures our attention to hear that there could be freedom. And we know that surely he means something more than just political freedom. 
Uh, he means something far deeper, far more lasting, far more significant. Um, so that immediately captures our attention, and yet we also confess there's a bit here that's a little puzzling um, to speak of, of the, this veil that Moses was wearing and uh, a veil covering people's hearts and then somehow a transformation coming and an unveiling and seeing and not seeing. And we long to, in fact, understand what, what is being said here. And to the degree we do long, we also know that's from you. And so we ask that you would fan that flame, you would deepen those roots, that you would deepen that longing, and you would satisfy it all. Uh, increasingly so this morning, would you help us to really, really hear and grapple with these words here as we find in, in 2 Corinthians. And we pray in your name. Amen. Well, let's just charge right in here in, into the context of this text in this larger letter. It's really pretty important that you understand, that we understand something better of that, the context of the text. The context is Paul has been forced into a position of trying to defend himself against opponents who say that uh, your apostleship is not is is um, not really worthy of paying attention to your leadership, your status, your authority. We don't really need to follow you, Paul. And so you can imagine, of course, the stakes are rather high at that point. You know, Paul's authority as an apostle being questioned therein is he even worth listening to? Is his message worth listening to? Is he is his example even worth considering? Uh, all, all of that. And so in response to that really tough accusation and these opponents of his, uh, Paul then lays out, if you will, the marks of his credentials. And there are two that you see up to this point. And the first is, as you're reading through 2 Corinthians, the first of the marks of his authority, the authentication of his apostleship, is his suffering. That's not mentioned in the text. I'm giving you context. His suffering, he's saying, look how, I'm paraphrasing, look how the Lord has advanced the gospel through my, our, suffering. That's one of the marks of the reality of his authority as an apostle. The mark of suffering. That's one. The next one, and that's where we are now, is, is not the mark of suffering, but the mark of the presence and the, the transforming power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, in essence, in this point, in this section of 2 Corinthians, look not just to how the Lord is using our suffering as a mark of authentication, but look at the presence, the power, the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives transforming you. And in making that point, that's where he hearkens back to these events recorded for us in Exodus chapter 32, 34 through 34. It's what uh, Carrie was reading from earlier. I'm not going to go back and reread all of, of that. We're going to come back to that later. But um, in that, we saw a reference to the fading of glory, uh, the, this glory emanating reflected off of Moses' face, this fading glory hidden by a veil, this veil worn over Moses' face. Now, so much we could say about that, but let me just simply make this point. Something truly profound was happening in that moment. 
something truly great was happening in that. But Paul is saying something greater still is upon us in that we, we all, so not just one, not just Moses, but we all as followers of Jesus have the ability to gaze upon, to behold, to see the glory of the living God. An unfading glory, by the way. So it's completely democratic, right? So it's not just for one, it's for all, all of those who are followers of Jesus. And it's everlasting, it's permanent, it's not fading. So Paul is saying something extraordinary, beautiful, amazing, astonishing has taken place here. Now, what all does that mean? Again, thinking in terms of the context and the mark of authentication of of why he's bringing all this up, what he's saying is, is that transformation is part of the essence of Christian discipleship. It's not an option. It's not an upgrade. It's essential to. It's part of. Transformation is part of Christian discipleship, which means we should expect it and pursue it. Transformation is part of, an essential part of Christian discipleship. We should expect it and pursue it. Now, what would it look like? What does it mean to expect and, trans- expect and pursue, rather, this transformation? What are we talking about? How do we see that? How does it unpack for us in the passage? Well, three things, and it's there in your outline if you've got the the bulletin there. Uh, The first thing being, Paul tells us something about the nature of this transformation. That is, what is it? He tells us something about the agent of this transformation, who brings it about. And then thirdly, he tells us something about the, the means of this transformation, how it comes about. Okay, so nature Agent means what, who, how, okay, of this transformation. He's unpacking it for us. So we're going to be drilling down in particular into verse 18. It's really where we're going to spend some time here, camping, marinating in verse 18. So it's nature. What are we talking about here? What does Paul mean when he speaks of this change, this transformation That is an essential part of Christian discipleship. Verse 18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What are we talking about here? We're talking about a change, about a transformation that that goes down to the roots. We're not talking about here that just something that just lies at the surface. We're not just talking about external change. We're not talking about the change of appearance like a chameleon, just something at the surface. We're talking about something that goes down to the roots, a metamorphosis. In fact, the Greek word that's translated, you have here in our English translations, transformation actually comes from a Greek word from which we get the word metamorphosis. Paul is saying metamorphosis, not like a chameleon, but like the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. Not something on the surface, just a matter of externals and, and, and appearance, but something, a, a change of form, metamorphosis. 
That's what he is speaking. So something that goes down to the very roots of our being. The old Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 35, it's printed in your quotes and notes, speaks of this, points towards this. In, in asking, what is sanctification? Growing in Christ-likeness. It's a $10 word for that. What is sanctification? And the answer is, sanctification is a mark of God's free, or work, sorry, a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man. After the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. The whole man is renewed. The whole person is renewed. So this is something that goes, a change, a transformation that goes down to the very roots of the person. And it takes place over time. It takes place over time. It is not instantaneous. It does not happen all at once. We are justified... That's another $10 word. That is to say, declared righteous by God when we put our faith in Christ. That is instantaneous. Boom, you are justified. That has to do with your legal status before God. Okay? That is instantaneous. That is not over time. That's all at once. But we're talking about something here that is over time, that is incremental, that is progressive. Our desires, the dispositions of our hearts to change, are transformed gradually. In fits and starts, perhaps. So in thinking about that, I think about, here's your image, driving on I-24. Right? This is progressive sanctification. <laughs> <laughs> this is growing in Christ-likeness, driving on I-24. There are times, yes, I will grant you, there are times where you travel according to your timetable and you get to what, just as you thought, when you thought and all that, but there are also a whole lot of other times, right? You know, we know all too well that it's a whole lot slower and a whole lot more maddening, and if you could, you'd just get out and bail, Right? That's the Christian life, driving on I-24. Okay? It's, 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 it's part of, of it, this a change goes down to the roots, and it is over time. It is progressive. There's a lot of assurance and encouragement just thinking in terms of the nature of what we're speaking of, the, the nature of this change and transformation. So for starters, the, the definitive sense in which we can say change is coming you are not, I am not, we are not forever going to be like I am, like you are, like we are. The progression is real. The change is real. The restoration, if you want to use that language, is real. As is oftentimes say, the Lord loves us just as he finds us, but he loves us so much, he doesn't leave us as he finds us. That is so good to know. That is so encouraging. There's such assurance to know that, Right? Also to know this, that it is progressive. So, the setbacks and the slowdowns that you experience in the course of your life as a believer 
do not, that's part of it. It does not necessarily mean there's been a work stoppage. It doesn't necessarily mean that the, the bank has cut off your credit. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's given up on you. But rather, it is part of what it means to grow. It, grow, it comes, the growth of the Christian life is in fits and starts. There are slowdowns and setbacks. Rome was not rebuilt in a day. You know, it did burn. It was not rebuilt in a day. You, I, we are a mess. This change is not going to happen in an instant. Not till Jesus comes back. So, that's the nature. Well worth knowing, transformation is an essential part of the Christian life. We should expect it, we should pursue it, we, should under, we must understand the nature of it. That takes us to the second point. It's Asian. Who does this? Who's carrying out this? Who's responsible? Excuse me. Who's responsible for this? Who's behind it? Well, let's take a look. Verse 18 again. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, so clearly the Lord is the subject. I mean, in terms of who's really driving the train here. What are his intentions, by the way? What are his intentions in, in, in all of, of this? Um, well, here, here's, here's what he's doing. He is taking a shattered image. What I mean by that, I'm using some, some image, biblical language, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. We are made in the image according to the likeness of God, made to represent him in this world, made to reflect something of him in this world. Genesis 3, fall. That image is now distorted, damaged, scarred, shattered. It's not obliterated, but it is damaged, distorted, scarred, shattered. The Lord then takes this shattered image and begins this process of repair, of renewing, of reclaiming, of restoring, restoring our very humanity, making us more like Jesus, who, by the way is not just fully God, but fully man. So he's making us like Jesus, the one who is the perfect man. Restoring our humanity, making us more and more Christ-like. That is our Lord's intention in this process. That's where we're going. What are his instruments? How does he bring this about? Now, this is kind of a bridge between point two and point three. What are his instruments in this? Well, we are involved in this. We have a critical role in this. Now, I'm going to give you another $10 word. It is not sanctification, growing in our Christ-likeness. It's alluded to here. It is not monergistic. That is to say, the working of one. Our rebirth, our regeneration... That is monergistic. That is done by God and God alone. But sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness, this transformation, it's synergistic. That is, worked by two parties. There is a combination. There is a partnering, if we could even use that language in, in this. A cooperation of two, that this would come about. It's, a, it's synergistic. Synergistic. The working of two together. We, how do you see that in a text, you ask? It comes about the transforming. Look at what Paul says. 
The transforming comes as we behold. It's very clear. As we behold, we are transformed. We are transformed as we behold. We are involved. We are involved as instruments in this process. He is the agent doing this, but he is working through our working. He is working in and through our working, our beholding. We'll get to that here in a minute. Which means, just thinking in terms of what do you do with that, what are the implications of that, it means, if I can use this language, we must position ourselves accordingly. Put ourselves in the right place, the right spot at the right time. So, football playoffs, right? Professional football. Two games played yesterday, two more today. No doubt yesterday, I didn't get a chance chance to watch much of it, but, you know, yesterday, and I'm sure it happened, I'm 100% sure it happened, and I'm 100% sure it's going to happen again today in, in, in one or both of the two games. There are going to be instances in which it looks like the quarterback is throwing the ball nowhere. There's no one wearing his jersey, his helmet, his colors in the right spot, and you're wondering, what an idiot. What's wrong with you? They're paying you all this money and you're throwing the, the ball in the green space or to the wrong person. And there's no one on your team there. But here's what you need to understand. Quarterbacks and receivers oftentimes operate according to what are called timing routes. The quarterback oftentimes is throwing the ball to where the receiver is supposed to be. So if you're a receiver and you want to catch the, the ball, that's like your, your glorious ambition for the day. I want to catch the ball hold the ball, run with the ball, score with the ball, then you need to be in the right place at the right time. You need to run your route. You need to position yourself accordingly. Okay. God is the agent. God is the agent working this transformation and this change through our working, right? How then can we experience this change, this transformation that we long for, that he intends for us? How can we experience that? By, by positioning ourselves accordingly. By laying hold of the means that he has put in front of us and, and set before us so graciously, so beautifully, so kindly, laying hold of them, that we would be positioned Accordingly, running our route. What does that mean? Well, uh, let me just I'll very simply just put it this way. So Don Whitney, the guy who wrote the book that we're doing in our little Sunday school class across the way, praying the Bible, a few years before he wrote that book, wrote a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And if you just open up the book, and there's a gazillion ways you could summarize this, but just in Don Whitney's table of contents, you can see how to run your route how to position yourself accordingly to be transformed and changed. Here are his chapter headings. Bible intake, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, stewardship, fasting, silence, and solitude, journaling, learning, and perseverance. These are all ancient, timeless answers the Lord has given to the question, how can I grow? How can I experience newness, change, transformation in my life? These are the means that he has set before us. 
These are the means that he has set before us that we would, if I can put it this way again, run the route or put ourselves in position. Transformation, again, is an essential part, an essential part of the Christian life. We then should expect it and pursue it. And we need to understand something of the, who is the agent and how he does this. Which then takes us to the third point. The means. How does he do this? We're going a little further with that because the text goes a little further with this when you, when you think about it. How does he do this? Again, the, the verse 18, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Let's read it again. And we all with unveiled face, look at the process, how this, this works. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It, this transformation comes through our beholding. Our beholding of the Lord of glory. That's how the change comes. So keep in mind, keep in mind. Uh, we just think in terms of what that language of beholding means, right? It means a, a looking a seeing, a perceiving, an apprehending. Again, keep in mind what Paul, the language, though the imagery, the, the events that Paul is hearkening back to from Exodus, Exodus chapter 34, 34, 35, the very last part of what we read a little while ago. Uh, Exodus 34, 34, verses 34, 35. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he was commanded. The people of Israel would see the face of Moses that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in, that is to say, back into the tabernacle, to speak to the Lord. Well, just by just thinking in terms of that, that what was, is implied in, in this, in the recounting of this, thing that apparently happened again and again and again and again in the life of Israel, in the life of Moses. We're not talking about just a quick glimpse and going out the door. We're talking about a, a, a gazing upon the Lord and His glory. We're speaking here in terms of, of considering things in the context of what Paul is saying about Jesus about who he is beholding, beholding him, who he is, the things that he has done for us, beholding his glory. But we have to go further because we're not just speaking here of, of beholding things about him. That's not what Paul says. He says beholding him. which demands time with him. Time with him. You can't, we can't get away from that. Are we not transformed, changed by the company we keep? Whose company are we speaking of here? Jesus. Stephen was praying this, I just, I picked up on in his prayer earlier that the people of Jerusalem 
knew something was different about the disciples in the book of Acts because they, they, could, they knew who they had been with. And it was evident the marks of that were upon them in their courage. Well, the same is true here for us today. In fact, it is exactly the same for us today. We are beholding, our, our, be, our becoming comes about by our beholding. We behold and we become. We behold and we become. And we have to go even further than what you may be thinking I mean when I say this. We're going beyond just imitation at this point. Yes, the imitation of Christ is a thing. We are called to that. I don't want to dismiss that. Uh, we do become, you know this, we do become like what we admire, who and what we admire and adore. We do. We do. That's just part of human nature. Anthropologists, secular Christian will tell you that. We become like what we worship, like what we admire, like what we adore. We become like that. We take on the features, the characteristics of that person or thing. Jesus, Jesus as the hero of the heroes is worthy of being emulated, asking the question all the time, what would Jesus do or maybe more clearly have me to do in this? So imitation is a thing, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about transformation becoming that comes about through beholding, seeing him. Seeing him, becoming through beholding by the work of the Holy Spirit upon the affections of our hearts. That's uh, Puritan language, affections. That is to say, what I am attracted to and repelled by is changed by who I'm spending time with. Jesus, the living Jesus Thomas Chalmers, the great uh, 18th, 19th century was time frame in which he lived, Scottish, yes, Presbyterian, so it's possible, Presbyterian pastor, great sermon that he is, among other things, known for, is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. There's, there's a quote, and there are quotes and notes there. It's, it's listed right there. And this is one line from that sermon. The heart is not so constituted, and I'll explain that here in a minute. The heart is not so constituted, and the only way to dispossess it, that is the heart, of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. That's how change comes. We are hardwired as men and women. We are hardwired such that it is impossible I'm not saying impractical. I'm saying impossible to just say no. It will not work. Just say no in the 1980s was doomed from the start. The heart needs a greater yes. That's the dynamic of our affections, of our inclinations, of our desires, of our dispositions. We have to be drawn towards something. So in order to say no, we have to have a bigger yes. How does all this fit together, you're wondering? Beholding Jesus changes your yes. 
He becomes the great yes. As we see who he is and his glory, spending time, yes, and you have to spend time with him in order to see who he is and his glory. Beholding his glory has an expulsive power upon the affections. That's the means. That's how it happens. The beholding, the becoming. The beholding and the becoming. Some of us are stubbornly holding on to our January resolutions. Yay, good for you. Let me help you, if I may. You want to be better. You want to do better. Okay. What needs to be your prayer? We didn't sing it. It's okay. Lord, be thou my vision. That's how the change comes. That's the only way this metamorphosis is going to happen, this beholding and becoming. Lord, be thou my vision. We are controlled by what we love, right? I've got T-shirts that say this, love what you, do what you love. We do do what we love. We all do it. The only explanation for what you did last, last week is because of what you love. The only explanation for what you'll do this week is because of what you love. You will do what you love, and you will love what you do. They are inextricably connected. What we need is a disruption in our love. We need Jesus and a beholding of Jesus to disrupt that cycle of the doing and the loving, the loving and the doing, that we would love him in beholding him. My sin, your sin, if I can put it this way, is a worship problem. What's the answer to that worship problem? What's the greatest need that we have then? A greater love. A greater love. How does that happen? How does the change come? How does the transformation come? Beholding. Beholding. Transformation is an essential part of the, of the Christian experience, the life as a Christian, Christian discipleship. It is an essential part. It is not an add-on. It is not an option. It is set before us as essential. Transformation. We should then pursue it and we should then expect it. And with that, we should understand the means of it. So, now let me take a step back. We actually have a couple minutes. I can't believe we do. I'm not going to go too far over time here. What does this look like for a local church? What would this mean for this body? I want to say a couple of things that are very much in line with everything we read earlier. It's just different language and a slightly different take. Just my flavoring on you know, what we're talking about here with the, the church's vision statement when it comes to this matter, this arena of transformation. And I'm going to give you two subheadings. One, it impacts the theme of our messaging. And two, it impacts the focus of our ministry. So the theme of our messaging and the focus of our, our, of our ministry. So first, the theme of our messaging Knowing that transformation is an essential part of what it means to follow Jesus 
as we speak, as we are poised towards people outside this, this fellowship, this body, this, this church, as we are engaging with and communicating with and speaking with and um, getting to know and love those who do not know Jesus, the, the searching, if I can put it that way, the searching, we want to say to them in all that we do and say, the deep change you are looking for, you are longing for, you are made for, is found in Jesus alone. And invite them into that. We want to invite them into that. Towards the searching, that's our messaging. Towards the struggling, that is to say, everybody here. <laughs> in some way, shape, or form. We want to be able to say again and again and again, to, to encourage one another, to assure one another, this work of transformation, I know you can't see it. And I know you doubt whether or not it's ever gonna, if he's, whether he's, maybe he's given, no, he's not given up on you. We want to encourage and assure one another of the reality of that work in one another's lives. When my arms Paul, you need to come alongside me and lift them up, and I need to do the same for you. I have weak arms. So do you. We want to come alongside the, the, the searching and the struggling and also the straying. The straying. And we have to be willing to challenge one another in love and say, brother, sister, as Paul did, had to, to Peter at one point, as recorded in the book of Galatians, you are not living in accord with the gospel. Not in your words, not in your actions, not in your posture towards people. You are not living in accord with the gospel. Is that not, I was thinking about this the past week, is that not the paradigm, the, the basic outline of nearly, well, certainly all the major letters of the New Testament? The apostles set forward the blazing, beautiful reality of what Jesus has done. And then they set forward the astonishing implications of what that is, and they're doing it in every case. Paul, no less so certainly with the Corinthian letters, addressing people that he has to say those things to because they weren't living in light of the gospel in any way at all. And so he's having to speak those things Things, saying, brother, sister, you are not, we are not living in light of the gospel. That's the pattern, the paradigm of the whole New Testament. Put it this way, we are not to be settlers. Now, what I mean by that is not to settle. Just to say, oh, that's just who they are. Oh, that's just their raisin. Oh, that's just their generation. Oh, that's just their temperament. Oh, they just can't help it. We cannot settle. We are not to be settlers. We are to be disciples, followers of Jesus, who intends so much more for us, who has set forward so much more for us, makes possible so much more for us. Will was reading that from Romans 6. Can we get away from that? Messaging. The messaging, the theme of our messaging. Secondly, the focus of our ministry. If you've been around here long at all, you've probably begun to figure out we're a heady bunch. 
Um, we read a lot. We talk a lot. We teach a lot. We study a lot. I'm not dismissing that. That's not my point. But there's a whole lot of head stuff going on all the time in our circles, in our, kind of, I'll just use the language, tribe. A whole lot of head. And sadly, tragically, too often, too little heart. Too little heart. And you see it in the number and nature of our debates. You see it in the type and tenor of our discussions. There's something out of kilter, something out of balance. In the context of the local church, of Christian ministry, education's purpose is reformation. Information's purpose is transformation. Information is not an end. It is a means towards transformation. And we cannot get those things confused. We cannot stop with being satisfied with having all the I's dotted and T's crossed with historic orthodoxy. We begin there, but that's not our ending point. That's not the destination. The destination is not orthodoxy, but lived out orthoproxy, right living. What would be the measures of success? Not brilliant scholars being raised up in our midst but humble servants who will get down on their knees. Maturity, the mark of the maturity is not how many debates we can win, but our willingness to lay down our preferences, rights, and very lives for one another. This is about transformation, about change. And this is the thing that causes me concern about my own heart and our own tendencies. To the degree we fail in these things, we are no different than the Pharisees of Jesus' day and worthy of the same condemnation. Now, that sounds like a bleak way to end this message. So I'm not ending it there. Here's where I'm ending it. Jesus is inviting us into so much more. So much more. Down to the roots over time, transformation of the whole person by his working through our working. Something that the world would even see and take, take notice of. Something that the, that the angels would see and take notice of. Again, Paul's words, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
Transformation is an essential part of Christian discipleship. We must expect it and pursue it. And that's why it is an essential part of our vision statement. Can we pray? Oh, Jesus, would you please help us hear? We are really, really hard of hearing on this. We don't like change, not when we're comfortable. We don't like the challenge that that brings and the uncertainty that that brings in, in nearly any form. Be thou our vision. Would you be thou our vision? Would you, oh, would you help us to know what it is to behold you, to behold your glory that we might then become, become increasingly the image bearers you mean for us to be. And we pray in your name.